we're jumping into Joshua. We've been in Joshua since the beginning of January. We're in chapter 23. Just to help you kind of land where we've been at, Joshua is split up into four major parts. You have the first part where God's preparing his family, the family of Israel, to move into the promised land. And that preparation didn't have to do with war tactics or sharpening up their swords or spears. It all had to do with their relationship with God. Their victory in the promised land hinged on their preparation through their covenantal relationship with God. And that covers the first part. The second part was the war itself, where they had to fight on God's terms. Whenever they tried to fight on their own terms, things did not end well. They had to fight on God's terms. The third, thing we, the third section that we looked at was how God gave them this land and how he called Israel to be devoted to God in the land that he gave them. And now we're moving into the very last part of it, which is the rest of God. So to start off this, this message, I want you to think about last speeches, last words, and the last part of life. You see, I had a a nine-year-old kid in my small group who asked for prayer, and he asked for prayer because he was afraid of death. And I think we can all relate to that even as adults. And if we think about last words, when someone has that lucidity at the end of life realizing, man, what was my life worth? What can I give that would mean something to the people who are left behind? Last words can be of extreme value. You see, I had a, a friend who was a certified nurse's assistant, a CNA, in a nursing home, and she once said to me, everyone needs to see a person die at least once. And I got to experience that at one point in my life, watching someone die, and I suddenly realized why that was so important, because you realized once that person's soul had left, there was just a husk, there was just a body, and it just makes you rethink life. And, it, and the other reason she said that to me was because Hollywood doesn't capture it. Movies don't capture what happens when someone dies. And, and last words are important because we hear this phrase, my life flashed before my eyes. That question, what did my life mean? The Bible points us towards this in Ecclesiastes 7.2. And if you don't know anything about that, that book, it was written by a king who had it all. Solomon. He experienced the wealth and the riches of life, and he's nearing the end of his life wondering, was it really all worth it? Was all that enjoyment, were all those good things that I began to worship actually worth it? And he says in Ecclesiastes 7.2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The living will lay it to heart. Why? So we don't waste our life. So we don't waste our life. So in continuing our journey into Joshua, and looking at this last part where God's people are entering into this rest and maintaining this rest, Joshua gives his last words. So if you flip over to me in Joshua 23, we're just going to start off with the first two verses. It says, A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies... And Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. So we need to listen up. We need to hear this man who faithfully followed God, led the family of Israel into the promised land, and he's trying to impart to the leaders, listen 
up. Hear what I have to say because I don't want you just to have come into this place of rest to throw it away when I'm gone. And this is the thing with rest, right? It's not rest meaning no work. Rest has everything to do with us resting in our relationship with God. It's God's people enjoying God together in unity. When we enjoy God, when we love God for who he is and what he has done, we find rest for our souls. That's the most important kind of rest, not just not working. In fact, oftentimes not working when we think it'll provide us rest actually does the opposite. But when we have rest in our souls from God, it doesn't matter what's going on in life. It, it could be this storm of events, and yet you can be at rest. And so Joshua desired to help Israel persevere in God's rest. And that's the main point that I hope you walk away with as we look at this chapter, is to persevere in God's rest. You see, even as they're in the promised land, guess what? The major battles were done, but they still had a ton of work to do in the land. But for them to be able to continue and do that work, they had to persevere in rest. They had to fight to maintain that rest, fight to maintain that relationship with God. And so we're going to look at three points today. These are, these are really simple points, okay? See God, trust God, and love God. And my, my fear is, is that sometimes we hear those points as like, yeah, I already know those. And yet these three basic ideas, not only does Joshua use these big concepts within his last words, but we're going to follow along with Joshua's last words, the last words of Christ in the Gospel of John that he imparts to his family, his disciples, before he goes to the cross. And so we're going to see the very same heart of Joshua anticipates the words of Jesus Christ when he was here on this earth. So let's jump into it. We're going to read the next couple of verses here, 3 through 5, Joshua 23, 3 through 5. It says, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. So notice right in verse 3, this is the first main point, see God. It says, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done. If you are going to persevere and rest in God, you must be able to spiritually see all that God has already done for you. Just like Israel, looking back at how God prepared them, how God led them into the promised land, how God was the one fighting and winning the battles, they need to take those, remember them for all that they are. Because when they are able to hold on to those things, when they're able to see all that God has done for them, then when life gets messy, when the storms of life hit, when there's still work to do, they're able to look back and say, no, God did it before and he can do it again. Even when things look bleak, even when it looks like it's going to end poorly, they're like, nope, we've seen this happen before and we know God will come through. If they are to persevere in rust, they need to see continually the abundance of God's good work in their life. And so, the author continues, and we see this in verse 3. What I love about this 
is at the very end it says, all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. See, God does things for his glory, but in doing things for his glory, he also does it for your good. We benefit from a God who is concerned about his glory. He's not an impersonal God. He's, not, he's a relational God who loves you deeply, just like he loved his family of Israel deeply. This is why we need to open our eyes and see all that God has done for us. And there's two ways, two things we need to be looking for that Israel's called to look at. First of all, see his victory. If you're going to persevere and rest, see the victories of God. So if you look at in 3 through 5, we see first of all at the end of 3, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. And then in verse 5 it says, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight and you shall possess their land. God has provided victory for them. It's a promise. And he's also promised to continue giving them victory. So they need to look at the victories of the past to encourage and give them perseverance for the victories that God will give them in the future. And here's where I want to encourage you. Is, um, there's a chapter in Joshua. It's one of those harder chapters. It's in verse 12. It's a bunch of list of names. And it's all the victories that have been won, not only by Moses, but by Joshua as well. And my encouragement back then is something practical was to make a victory list. That means looking at your life, actually taking time out of your day, out of your busy schedule, at least for an hour with your family and be like, okay, let's just start listing. What are all the victories that God has done in our life? Because I can guarantee you, if you've been following Jesus, even if it's just been for a month, there have been victories that God has walked you through. And how easily do we forget those? And guess what? I didn't do it. You know why? Because I got distracted by life. And this is why it's so crucial for us to persevere in life is because it seems so simple. Oh, yeah, I'll get to that. I'll make that victory list at some other point. You know, I'll, I'll categorize my story. It's, and, and we'll do it once, right? We'll maybe share our story uh, to a, uh, some friends or maybe we'll do it at a large group setting. We share all that God has done for us. But then a couple years will go by. And God has done so much. And when we don't reflect on what he's done, then we'll just continually put our eyes down into our circumstances and forget the God who is fighting for us. We forget the God who's the God of promises. And that's the second thing that Joshua encourages is see not only the victories that have been done, but the promises that God has fulfilled. If you jump a little forward in verse 14, we see this. It says, second half of verse 14, Joshua 23, it says, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Why do we have to see the promises? Because when we're stuck in the storms of life, how often do, if we're honest with our heart, we, we believe that God's not going to show up. We don't believe that his promises are going to be fulfilled. That's why we have to see the promises that he has fulfilled. And this is so critical for Israel because Moses is, or sorry, Joshua is calling them out. He's saying, no, God's done everything he has promised up to this point. There's not one promise he has not fulfilled. And so we continue in trusting his promises. But it's a journey. It takes perseverance. And we looked at how Joshua is not just a journey into the promised land. Sometimes it's easy to think, oh yeah, it's just about the land. No, it's not about that. It's about journeying into all the promises of God. 
And three main areas of promises that we looked at is God promising provision, his presence, and his protection. And those would ultimately be fulfilled in what Jesus Christ would do on the cross. But it's a journey. It's a journey of life, and it takes perseverance. We have to persevere in rest, in relationship with God. So what does this mean for us, this first part about talking about seeing God? Why is it so important? Because it intertwines with faith. You're probably familiar with Hebrews 11.1. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But what helps our faith in believing things that we can't see is the things that we can see, the things God has already done for us. Think about that for a minute. Even, let's just jump now to John 14. John 14, 10 through 11. Again, this is Jesus right before he goes to the cross. He's talking to his family, his brothers, his disciples. John 14, 10 through 11. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. If you read the gospel all the way to the end, when Jesus dies on the cross, he rises again. He meets some disciples on the road to Emmaus. And what does he do? He says, look, I fulfilled everything that's happened. All the things that the prophets were talking about, I did those things. So look back, see what I've already done, and use that to undergird your faith as you trust in what God is going to do. You see, (laughs) I don't know if other guys can relate to this, but sometimes I'm looking for something in the house. And I take about, I don't know, anywhere from 30 seconds to maybe five minutes if if I'm doing really good. And then if I can't find it, I go to the person who knows all, which is my wife. And I'm like, I can't find it. Can you please help me and show me the thing? And she's gracious to me because if my kids do that, she's like, no, you need to go back and look under some things and actually spend some more time than like two minutes looking for something. But she's gracious with me in that. Um, And think about how we often do that with God, where we don't actually take the time to see what he's done in our life, where we get caught up so much in life and we can sometimes throw ourselves a pity party and thinking, man, God's not going to show up. And what he wants you to do is lift up your eyes. You may not know what's going forward, but man, you can at least take some time and look back at what he's done. See all that he's done in your life so that you can move forward with him, so you can persevere in the rest. Because when you don't look back and see those things, it becomes that much harder to trust in God and to rest in him. So we need to persevere in this. And Here's a couple ways to do it. First of all, do it in community. This is why story is so important, sharing about what God has done. Not as some way to puff up your pride or to say, look at how great of a Christian I am, but so that you can not only encourage yourself but encourage others because sometimes we get in that place where it's hard to see what God has done and we need to hear from other believers in community who are like, hey, hear what God's done in my life. And that often jogs our memories to be like, that's right, he's done it for me too. And again, I want to encourage you, do it in your family. This week, make a victory list with your family. My wife is an amazing woman, and last sermon, we were talking about sealing the cracks of fear, and I gave some encouragement of how to do that. And the next day, Monday, I was struggling with some fears, and she says, I think you need to listen to the message you just preached. Yes, honey, I do. Thank you. And so we had 
a really powerful time of prayer together over our fears, our mutual fears, and sharing that together. So I encourage, maybe you haven't done that, take some time, maybe from last sermon, but also this idea of a victory list that you can post in your family's home, or if you're single, post it in your home. And if, if you're a young kid out there, if you're, if you're one of those five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, you need to help your parents make that list. And here's the, here's the thing I encourage you kids. When we're done here, start bugging your parents and say, hey, when are we going to write up that victory list? Do that for me, will you? Appreciate it. So the next thing Joshua calls them to, he's called them to see God. And we just saw Jesus do the same thing. See me. See that I'm God. And now... Joshua calls them to trust God. Starting in verse 6, it says, Therefore be strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. Be very careful there. Oh, we're going to save 11. We'll get there. So first of all, trust his word. If you're going to persevere in the rest of God, trust in his word. That's why in verse 6 of 23, we see this reference to the law of Moses, where he says, therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. That's the word of God to them. You see, we have to see that as the church today that we've been given a word of God. In fact, we've been given the word. Jesus was the word who came, and this book is all about him. And we have to make sure that we are very strong to keep this word. And, and let me give you an example from that. In Joshua, this same language is used, right? If we go back to Joshua 1, what does it say? Be strong and courageous. And what I love about that is now it's being tied to God's word, that if you're going to be strong and courageous in this life, you better have your life based on his word, okay? Be very strong to keep it. That means to read it, to know it, to do it, to make sure it is the center of who you are. We have to trust his word. We also have to trust his way. If we look at, and this ties directly to his word, but if you look at verse 6, last part of it says, turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left. What I love about this part, this passage and trusting God in his ways, is that for the one way that he mentions in pursuing God, how many ways does he give of how they can go a different way? Keep Keep looking at the next verse. It says what? Don't mix with other nations. That's a way you can get off the path, right or left. Make mention of the names of their gods. Swear by them. Serve them. Bow down to them. This is why understanding trust is such a key thing. He's telling them don't trust in what other nations are going to tell you. Don't trust in the names of other gods. Don't swear by them. Serve them. Bow down to them. And it's so easy to look at this, especially because... Uh, if you've grown up in the church, it seems so foreign to think of other gods. And so I just want to give you this example. Um, I was over in East Asia. I was traveling with Hong Shi a couple of years ago. 
and I'm walking down in the downtown area, and there's um, literal idol shops. Idols is an I-D-O-L. And they're, they're a Buddha. And they're, they're, there's like multiple ones. Like, I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like these gold Buddhas of varying sizes that you can get and put in your home do something with. And it's easy as a Westerner to be like, man, it's just so sad they have these idol shops. But then as I was looking at them, this image hit my mind because there, there were some of these downtown too. And it's uh, cell phone shops. They're all on these little pedestals throughout the shops. And there are a lot of them in our culture. And I think, honestly, our phones can often be revealing of our hearts and the time and attention and the trust that we put in in news sources, the trust we put in in pleasure, the trust we put in in so many other things. And so we can often take that and we're doing the exact same thing that these guys are being warned about. Where is your trust? Where are you putting it? And here's the application. Trust in his word. Trust in God's word, trust in his way. So there's two ditches I see with God's word. One is, is that you make it into this legalistic thing. You like take this word and you think, man, I'm just going to memorize this. I'm going to do a lot of really good things. But as a friend of mine, Patrick Nave said, I think many of you know him, he said in his story, I checked the box of my mind, but I didn't check the box of my heart. We can often do that with God's word where we check the box of our mind. We don't check the box of our heart that he needs to change and come underneath that word. The other one is we devalue God's word where we don't think it's that big of a deal in our life. And I think my generation in particular, this is something we've struggled with. And the reason why is because in either of these ditches, we make ourselves the center of God's word instead of Jesus. It's not about Jesus, but it's about us. And you can see this when We often get discouraged when we think, man, I'm going to God's word and I'm not getting anything out of it. I've been there. Have you been there? Well, guess what? You're basically saying that it's all about you getting something out of it. And you should be getting something out of it, but you should be getting something out of it because it's about Jesus, not about you. And you might not be getting something out of it because maybe you're the center of your life and not Jesus. That can happen sometimes. I struggle with it. And so, what else do we do? We trust in his way, right? As we look at the story of Joshua, Joshua called them so many different things. He called them to walk around a city seven times, and it seems completely ridiculous when you're talking about strategy. Well, it wasn't about strategy. It was about God and about trusting in his ways, fighting his ways, and that's what they do, right? And then, this is what I love about Joshua 23.10, and this is, this is huge, One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. One puts to flight a thousand. If you've read the stories of Joshua, you know that's true. Things like that were happening. So now let's turn back over to John, back over to the last words of Jesus. We get something similar that happens in John 14, 12 through 14. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in me, in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Unfortunately, this verse gets twisted around a lot, right? People think, oh, sweet, that means I can ask God for anything and he'll do it. I'll ask for a Lamborghini and he'll somehow show up in my life. That's not what this is about. 
In fact, what it's describing is a disciple who's come to the point where your concern is like, Jesus, who, who's the center in this? Who is the center? In verse 13, I will do that the Father, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So when we're at rest with God, when we are aligned with God, we're going to be asking the right things of God, and those are the things that he will do. And when he puts you in the battle, because you are in a spiritual warfare right now, if you are fully trusting God, he can turn a thousand enemies away. He can turn a thousand fears away. This is our God. This is the gospel and the promises he gives. And I I think the reason Joshua is bringing this up is because he knows that there may be a time when there's only one enemy, and it's going to be a fear of Israel to be like, "Ah, I'm I'm done. In fact, I can think in the near future of Israel, this dude called Goliath, and they were tested on this. Are they going to trust in God's way of victory or their own way? And similar to us, as we battle the spiritual forces of evil, we are called to trust in God's word and we are called to trust in his way. What did Jesus attack Satan with? He attacked Satan with the very words of God. This is what we believe in. So, how do we know the things of God? We got to trust that it's in his word. We start here. We make this the foundation of our life. And if you've been in a place where you're like, man, I'm having a hard time reading this, again, do it in community. Have other people who've been in this, who've had their hearts soaked in this for a long time, guide you to God's word, to see Jesus and his love. And that's the last part that we're going to go to. We've talked about seeing God. We've talked about trusting in God. Now we're going to look at the love of God. So let's go back to Joshua in 23, verse 11 through 16. says this, be very careful, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now, I'm about to go the way of the earth. And you know in your hearts and your souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. So let's jump back up to the start of this part. It says here in verse 11, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. So he's used this in the previous one, in trusting God's word. He says, be, he says back in verse 6, or um, in verse 6, it says, therefore be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. And then we see in verse 11, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Be careful in your love. If you're going to persevere and rest, be careful who and what you love. Be very careful. 
Why? Because earlier in this chapter, we see that there is a bunch of options other than God that Israel is going to be faced with. Are they going to persevere? Are they going to continue in love? I love this quote from David Jackman. He says this, In many ways, the dangers associated with the peace will be harder and more challenging than the energy required for the conquest. Let me say that again. In many ways, the dangers associated with the peace will be harder and more challenging than the energy required for the conquest. Let me give you an example of this. In many ways, we get to enjoy peace as a church within the United States. We are able to gather here out of freedom, and it's beautiful. But in some ways, that's harder for us because it's easier for our love to be misplaced. It's easier instead of resting in God to rest in the wealth that we have naturally as citizens of the United States. And so what does Joshua encourage them in? He's encouraged them in a couple of ways. You'll see this word cling show up within this chapter. And so in verse 12, it says, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and he continues from there. This idea of cling is both used for clinging to God and his love, but then showing how, like, if you're not clinging to God, you're clinging to something else, and you're going to have to face at the end of your life one day whether you're clinging to the right thing or not. Divided love will be destroyed, will destroy you. So be careful who and what you love. Be very careful. And then also be aware of the consequences of misplaced love. Loving anything else above God brings death and defeat. Think about this. We read passages like this, and and unfortunately, it's easy to walk away and think, man, God's such a jerk. Why would he do all these things? But just... Hold on to this with me. I used this a couple sermons ago. I'm going to use it again. If you think about God, who is he's the creator. He's created everyone and everything. He has given us life. He's given us purpose. If we look right at the beginning. So when we deny God and cling to something else, it's like having an oxygen tank that's giving you life and you cut that oxygen source off. What do you think is going to happen? And so... If you cut yourself off from God, no wonder you're finding purpose in other things that just aren't working. You're trying to find life in other things, and it's actually creating death. You're, you're trying all these things, and, and notice the consequences of misplaced love as we look at this passage. He, he describes how these nations will be a snare, a trap, a whip on your side, thorns in your eyes. You know, actually, I just saw this um, as, I'm, as I'm reading this right now. Think about what happened to our Savior and what he took for us. As he took the punishment that we deserved for our sins, what happened to him? He was whipped, and there were thorns that were placed on his head, representing what life without God does. And ultimately, he took the consequence for the wrath of God and what that looked like. See it here in this. When the consequences of misplaced love ultimately is going to be death and complete separation from God. Dividing your love removes you from the rest that God offers. And what I mean by that, when I say that, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, sometimes we can get tripped up and think, oh wait, does that mean like I lose my salvation? No, if you've, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there's nothing that can separate you from his love. Nothing. But know this, that if you put your love somewhere else and look at Revelation at the churches that are talked about, there's a church there that says, hey, 
listen up. You've, put your, you've lost sight of your first love. You've put your love somewhere else. Well, guess what? The family of God, one of the consequences that are mentioned here, that they'll be removed from the presence of God's good goodness, removal from that rest. God will allow you as a believer to go out into the wilderness and experience unrest so that you will run back to him. And so if you're in that place, and maybe you're feeling like, like the prodigal son who's sitting in the mud of pigs and realizes, man, it was way better back in my father's house than do what the prodigal son did, get up out of that mud and run back to him. Because guess what? Your father will receive you. Your father loves you that much. This is a warning call to say, hey, guess what? Out of the presence of God isn't good. It's bad. In my presence is all the goodness you ever need. So if you're in that place, run back to him. The reason the consequences of misplaced love is so severe is because of how good God's love is. So when you see those consequences, it's, it's, it's actually a reflection of the deepness of how much God's love is for you. So again, last time, we're jumping back over to the last words of Jesus in John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So this leads us to the story of Jesus. And when I say last words, just a reminder, these are the last words before he goes to the cross. The word of God, Jesus, continues on for eternity, just so you know. But what can we take away from this is that if you're looking for love, look to the cross. If you're looking for love, look to Jesus. Why? Because he laid down his life for you. He's the only one. He's the only one that your love actually is secure in. Your husband's not going to be able to provide that. Friends aren't going to be able to provide that. Church community ultimately isn't to provide that. Hopefully all those things are pointing you to the love of Jesus. That's what they're here for. And if you're wondering, man, I'm having trouble finding God. I'm having trouble seeing God. I'm having trouble trusting God right now. How do you love God? How do you know if you love God? Go back to the first two things that we talked about. What are you looking at? What are you seeing in your life? What is the thing that's filling your gaze of your life that's consuming your attention? Is it God or is it something else? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in yourself? I can tell you, I've gone down that road many times. It doesn't end well. Are you trusting in someone else other than God? That doesn't end well either. And one of the reasons I like to use this is you can look at someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, and maybe they're trusting in their wealth, maybe they're trusting in other things, and it seems like that's lived out great for them, a Jeff Bezos or something like that. Well, most of the time, it doesn't work out in this life well for them. But even if they're happy and feel content for the rest of their life, that wealth lasts as long as they live. That wealth lasts as long as they live. At some point, they're going to reach death's door, and they're going to find out what they were clinging to. Was it Jesus, or was it something else? So what you're looking at, what's filling your gaze, what you're trusting in, those are indicating what you really love in your heart. So if we're going to lead our church forward, if we're going to lead our families forward, it's got to start with us first. It's got to start with our love as individuals. And then as we were just talking about this, we had this awesome men's retreat Friday. If you missed it, guys, be sure you make the next one in a month. 
one of the things that we were looking at is how God created us, created humanity, and, men, and, men, and men's part in this is influencing. Okay? Think about this. God loved us so dearly. He died on the cross. He rose again so that we could be saved. And when we become saved, who do we influence first? Usually it's those closest to us. It's our family. It's our friends. And then those people, as you get disciples together, make what? They make the church. So God starts with the individual, and he influences the church. And then what does the church do as more disciples are made? They influence the world. And so when you get that redemptive perspective, we no longer have to be under the weight and the yoke of culture influencing us, but we influence culture. And when the church begins to influence culture, we can put a thousand enemies to flee before us because of the power of God. And unfortunately, I think we can not see that as the church because we're not measuring success by God's standards. We think it's got to be by our standards, by man's standards. But if you lift up your eyes, you put your faith in Jesus, he will use you to influence the world. So we've looked at the last words of Joshua. We've looked at how those last words anticipate and mirror the last words of Jesus. My encouragement to you today is to persevere in the rest of God. Persevere in that relationship with him. Don't give up. When it gets hard, see God and all that he's done in your life. Trust in him because he's the one who fulfills his promises. And then be very careful to make sure your love is on Jesus. Let's God in heaven, we come before you. The, the words that were used, even this afternoon, God, are, are so pitiful compared to the majesty of who you are. And Jesus, simple things like seeing and, and trusting and loving, can I can take it for granted, God. And so I just pray that we hear the words of a man who is close to death, that we hear the words of Jesus That we hear your words, Jesus, you who went to the cross, you who walked out of that grave. Help us to see you. Help us to trust you. Help us to depend on your love. And God, where we have misplaced things in our life, God, we want to cry out to you as the only source of truth, as the only way that we can live our life, that left to our own devices, God, we're helpless. We're not going to make the right choices, and we're going to flounder. But in you, Jesus, a thousand can be put to flee. So we trust in your power, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.